This sermon was recorded at the Church of Christ, Northwest Arkansas. We are Christians seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth, according to the New Testament. Come worship with us Sunday mornings at 1030 at 1708 Elm Springs Road in Springdale, Arkansas. Ecclesiastes 5, verse 4 and 5, I want to introduce our thoughts with that, with that passage there at the top. The Bible says, When thou vowest a vow unto God, defer not to pay it. For he hath no pleasure in fools. Pay that which thou hast vowed. Better is it that thou shouldest not vow, than that thou shouldest vow and not pay. We're, we're at a time of the year a lot of times when people make vows. They make resolutions. They make promises. And that's the reason for the study today. It's a time when we reflect back on the past year and we, we look at a new year that's coming and we think about our lives and we think about things that maybe we should have done or not done, things that we need to change. Sometimes people will make vows and they'll make promises to God. And so I thought that we might remind ourselves this morning of the seriousness of doing this, that the text here points out the seriousness of it. When thou vowest a vow unto God, it says, defer not to pay. For he had no pleasure in fools, pay that which thou hast vowed. Better is it that thou shouldest not vow than that thou shouldest vow and not pay. So we're better off in God's sight not promising things that we don't deliver than, than uh, you know, than promising and not doing it. We, uh, we pride ourselves, I think all of us do, on being people of our word. We, we don't like lying. We hate that sin in other people. We, we're quick to see it. And uh, it's easily seen when others are false and when they lie. And, and we don't like that. But you know, when we think back on ourselves, our own lives this morning, and that's really what I want us to do, could it be that we've made some promises to God that we haven't fulfilled? And is that not lying? And could it be that, uh, that we made vows that we broke, which is the same? And you know, it's easy to look at other people's lives and, and see things that are wrong with them, see mistakes that they make, it's real easy to look at others and nitpick them. Every one of us can look at the other probably and find something that's really not right, something that really ought to be changed. And it's pretty easy to do, but it's really hard to look at ourselves. It's a lot easier to look at other people and to find their faults. And we're real good at not confessing our faults, but confessing other people's faults if we're not careful. So we need to be, we need to be watchful about that. For just a little while this morning, let's put all of the judgment of others aside, our criticism of other people, our thoughts about what they may have said and not done, and let's just think about ourselves for a moment and how we are with God and, and, and what we've done with God, what we've promised, what we're not living up to or what we need to change or correct, and let's see if we can find some things that might need to be corrected in our own lives instead of others. Let's do that today. There's a story in the Old Testament I want us to read on the inside there, Judges chapter 11, that I think perfectly illustrates the seriousness of making vows and then failing to keep them. And it shows the, the blessedness of keeping those vows. Let me put a little map on the board here. Let's take the land of Israel. Here is the, here's the Sea of Galilee and the Jordan comes down, of course, and empties into the Dead Sea. And over here on the east side of the Jordan River, 
this is the land of Canaan over here, so let me just draw that land out. And of course the Mediterranean Sea is out over here. Along in this part right here is Jerusalem. I'll just put a J there. But on this east side of Jordan, somewhere around in this area, probably right in here, was a place called Gilead. And uh, the tribes of Reuben and Gad, when the children of Israel were on the way to the land of Canaan, they besought uh, Moses and them that they might have this land. The word Gilead means land of cattle. And of course Reuben and Gad were tribes that had a lot of cattle. And so they asked that rather than cross Jordan, they might take their inheritance over here on the east side of Jordan. And of course all of that was worked out. They agreed that they would fight with, with the other tribes for the possession of their lands and that those lands of course would help them. And so this was all worked out mutually. But I wanted you to see this land of, of Gilead. On the east side of the Jordan River also was a place called Ammon. And if you remember who Ammon, Moab was down in this area. And if you remember Ammon and Moab, these were the, the, uh, these were the offsprings of Lot. Remember when Lot had been delivered out of Sodom and Gomorrah and his wife had turned into a pillar of salt, it was just he and his two daughters. And remember they were afraid that they would have no descendants by their father, they would be childless, they didn't know a man. So they got their father drunken and committed incest and both became pregnant by their father. And the children that were born were Ammon and Moab. And these are Lot's sons that fathered these nations. And of course Lot was Abraham's nephew. So the Ammonites and the Moabites were kinfolks to Israel. Uh, Lot uh, was Abraham's nephew of course. So there's the connection. And of course when Israel settled into the land over here, uh, and took possession and all, they had trouble always with Ammon and Moab and it seemed like they'd come and attack and they were always battling with them. And this story we're going to read now, <clears throat> just to give you the setting, will take place around Gilead uh, by an attack by these Ammonites down here. So now you know where the, the situation and kind of where the location is and I thought that might make the story make a little bit more sense for us. Read with me now Judges 11 verse 1. The Bible says, Now Jephthah the Gileonite was a mighty man of valor, and he was the son of a harlot. Now note that, his mother was a prostitute. And Gilead begat Jephthah. And Gilead's wife bare him sons, and his wife's sons grew up, and they thrust out Jephthah, and said unto him, Thou shalt not inherit in our father's house, for thou art the son of a strange woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brethren, and dwelt in the land of Tob. And there were gathered vain men to Jephthah, and went out with him. And it came to pass in process of time that the children of Ammon made war against Israel. And it was so that when the children of Ammon made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to fetch Jephthah out of the land of Tob. And they said unto Jephthah, Come, and be our captain, that we may fight with the children of Ammon. And Jephthah said unto the elders of Gilead, Did ye not hate me, and expel me out of my father's house? Why are you come unto me now when you're in distress? And the elder elders of Gilead said unto Jephthah, Therefore we turn again to thee now that thou mayest go with us and fight against the children of Ammon and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. And Jephthah said unto the elders of Gilead, If you bring me home again to fight against the children of Ammon and the Lord deliver them before me, shall I be your head? 
And the elders of Gilead said unto Jephthah, The Lord be witness between us, if we do not so according to thy words. Then Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and captain over them. And Jephthah uttered all of his words before the Lord in Mizpeh. So now you kind of get the setting here now that Ammon has come against Israel and it's affecting Gilead here. And here's Jephthah now, born to Gilead as his father. And, uh, and yet he's the son of a whore. And uh, yet Gilead had another wife that uh, he fathered children by. And these other children just despised Jephthah. They looked down on him. He was classless to them. He was just human debris. His mother was a prostitute. He was nothing to them. And of course, they were sons of, uh, of a legitimate wife to Gilead the father, see. And so they just decided as they grew up together that, that Jephthah is just not going to inherit with us. They thrust him out. And of course, he took refuge over in Tob and took some other men with him. He was a brave man. He was a man of valor, a man of war, a mighty man, a great fighter. This was, uh, this was his great qualities, a great leader. And of course, when Ammon now comes and attack, well, all of a sudden they remember Jephthah. And though he wasn't good enough before, you see, to be part of the family and to have an inheritance among them, now they need him. And so they go to him asking him to help, help them fight against Ammon. And he said, now why are you come to me? You didn't want me. You thrust me out. You said I wasn't good enough. And now you've come over here. What do you want with me now? They said, well, we need you to be our head, our captain, our leader, and help us fight against the Ammonites. And if you'll do that, they all agreed that Jephthah would be the head over Gilead. And so he agrees and comes back to Gilead with them. Now we take up the reading in verse 29 there. Then the Spirit of, excuse me, then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, and he passed over Gilead and Manasseh and passed over Mizpeh of Gilead, and from Mizpeh of Gilead he passed over unto the children of Ammon. And Jephthah vowed a vow unto the Lord, and said, If thou shalt without fail deliver the children of Ammon into mine hands, then it shall be that whatsoever cometh forth of the doors of my house to meet me, when I return in peace from the children of Ammon, shall surely be the Lord's. And I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah passed over unto the children of Ammon to fight against them, and the Lord delivered them into his hands. And he smote them from Aurora, even till thou come to Meneth, even twenty cities, and unto the plain of Ammon, excuse me, plain of the vineyards, with a very great slaughter. Thus the children of Ammon were subdued before the children of Israel. And Jephthah came to Mizpeh unto his house. And behold, his daughter came out to meet him with timbrels and with dances. And she was his only child. Beside her he had neither son nor daughter. And it came to pass when he saw her that he rent his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, thou hast brought me very low, for thou art one of them that trouble me. For I have opened my mouth unto the Lord, and I cannot go back. And she said unto him, My father, if thou hast opened thy mouth unto the Lord, do to me according to that which hath proceeded out of thy mouth. For as much as the Lord had taken vengeance for thee of thine enemies, even of the children of Ammon. And she said unto her father, Let this thing be done for me. Let me alone two months, that I may go up and down upon the mountains, and bewail my virginity, I and my fellows. And he said, Go. 
And he sent her away for two months, and she went with her companions and bewailed her virginity upon the mountains. And it came to pass at the end of two months that she returned unto her father, who did with her according to his vow which he had vowed, and she knew no man. And it was a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went yearly to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileonite four days in a year. So here's a man now, son of a prostitute, kicked out of his house, little opportunity probably to be trained in what was right and wrong, at least uh, at great disadvantage seeing he had that kind of a mother, and uh, far less advantage than what you and I have. Just think of, think of the upbringing of this boy, and you usually don't expect very much of, of kids like this. You don't expect them to grow up and be much of a man or a woman, and yet he's a pretty good man, isn't he? In fact, if you read the book of, of Hebrews chapter 11, he's mentioned there in that hall of fame among the faithful, those of great faith. Jephthah is there. So that's a pretty high honor when you make Hebrews chapter 11, and he made that chapter. But he, he wins a victory. The Lord delivers Ammon into his hands, and he returns home now. He's a national hero. He's, uh, he's saved Gilead. And now he's won the leadership of God's people. He's head over that people. So things look pretty good, and he comes home, no doubt, very happy. Very happy. Because he made an oath, a promise to God, and God came through and delivered for him. But now when he gets near this house, his daughter comes out to meet him. Look at verse 34 again, there in Judges 11. He vowed this vow. Let's look back at verse 30 and 31. Jephthah vowed a vow unto the Lord and said, If thou shalt without fail deliver the children of Ammon into mine hands, then it shall be that whatsoever cometh forth of the doors of my house to meet me, when I return in peace from the children of Ammon, shall surely be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. That's his rash vow that he made. And then in verse 34, Jephthah came to Mizpah unto his house. And behold, his daughter came out to meet him with timbrels and with dances. She was his only child. Beside her, he had neither son nor daughter. So here is his lovely daughter, the love of his life. She is his only hope now at this point of having a posterity. If he's going to hope to have any descendants, any of his bloodline, right now, so far as he knows, it's going to come through this daughter right here because he has beside her neither son nor daughter. She is the love of his life. And now when he gets near the house and he's all happy about his victories, this daughter that he loves so dearly is the first one out of the house to meet him. And he remembers the vow. In verse 35, in reading, it came to pass when he saw her that he rent his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, thou hast brought me very low, for thou art one of them that trouble me. For I have opened my mouth unto the Lord, and I cannot go back. I promised God that I'd offer you the first thing that came out of my house. And now when I come home, you've just, you've just broken my heart. You've brought me very low. Because I made this promise to the Lord. And the daughter says to him, Father, if you've promised God something, you go ahead and keep it. Because he's given you victory over your enemies. And of course, I'm sure she's made aware then what the vow was. 
And she tells him, Father, give me two months. Just give me two months and let me go bewail. Let me go mourn and cry over my virginity. That I'll never know a man. That I'll never bear children with you. Because you've offered me to the Lord here. And then you can do with me according to your vow. And he gave her two months. Her and her companions to go and bewail and cry over her virginity and the loss of things. And then she returned back to her father. And the Bible says he did with her according to the vow that he had vowed. And of course he's remembered as I said in Hebrews 11. As one, one of the great men of faith in the Old Testament. Now this was a rash vow. A vow that he ought to never made. But he made it. And then once he made it he realized I've made this to God and I can't go back on it. I want us to think about what we would do if that happened to us. If we made such a rash vow as that. And then we were reminded of it. And we understand that God expects us to keep what we promised. Could we follow through like he did? That's a pretty incredible thing, isn't it? And while he may have been foolish to put himself in that position, you have to admire his, his stickability, as we would say, his, his willingness to follow through on what he promised because he'd spoken these words to God. And he kept them. So it's very serious when you and I make vows. That's one thing we all learned from this story. It was serious to Jephthah, wasn't it? So serious that he, he had to keep it. He, uh, he did so at great cost. Vows, when they're not kept, you see, become lies. Hebrews 6, let's look at something that's said about God here. I believe Ben read this last week, maybe. Hebrews 6, 17 and 18. <clears throat> Wherein God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of His counsel confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who fled for refuge to lay hope, hold on the hope that is set before us. So here is God now swearing with an oath uh, to Abraham, and God made all kinds of oaths where He swore things. And if God hadn't kept those oaths, of course it would have been a lie, but it's impossible for God to lie. God always keeps what He promises. God swore an oath, for example, to David that He would resurrect Christ. Look at Acts 2 there with me, verse 30 to 32. Acts 2 and verse 30. Therefore being a prophet, speaking of David, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins according to the flesh he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He seeing this before spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up whereof we're all witnesses. God swore to David he'd raise up Christ. And the Bible says this speaks of the resurrection of Christ. So God swore with an oath to David he would resurrect Christ and sit him on David's throne. What if God hadn't kept that promise? Then you and I would be lost. If he had made that oath and failed to keep it, there would be no resurrection of Jesus. And if there's no resurrection of Jesus, you and I have no hope. We are lost. There is no everlasting life because all we can do now is go down to the grave and remain there because death has not been conquered if Jesus didn't rise from the dead.
But God kept that oath because God always does. God's faithful. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. There had no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you're able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. God's faithful. So when God says something, He does it, but we don't. And when we fail to, to keep our word, it becomes sin. Would you look at Deuteronomy here on the back side, verse 20, chapter 23 and verse 21. When thou shalt vow a vow unto the Lord thy God, thou shalt not slack to pay it. For the Lord thy God will surely require it of thee, and it would be sin in thee. So let's understand that statement pretty clearly here. When we vow something to God and we fail to keep it, it's sin. He's very plain about that. God's going to require it of us. And that's why Jephthah kept that vow. Because he knew God would require that of him. He'd promised it. And God's going to require these vows of you and I. And I want us to see the significance of that and the importance of it. Vows, when they're not kept, then become lies. Let's look for a while now at some vows that people make today. Here's some of the common vows. First of all, there's marriage vows. These are probably the most common vows that we we think of vows a lot of times. We think of wedding vows. But let's look at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 to 33. Talks about the husband and wife. Paul said, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives beat their own husbands and everything. So now he's given the wives this charge. Then in verse 25, he speaks to the husbands. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth it, nourisheth it and cherisheth it even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church, nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. Here's the instructions then to husbands and wives. And of course, when we get married, we take these vows, don't we? We look at the other one and we promise to be faithful to them, and we promise to take them for better or for worse. Well, somebody says, I didn't know it'd be that bad. Well, it can be. <clears throat> and if, <clears throat> if it's that bad, you just took them. <laughs> That's why you need to be careful who you take. For better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health. That's what we say. And there's a lot of people that have made those promises and they've got bad marriages, but they've made vows. And they're there and God's heard them. 
And so people stay a lot of times just for the sake of the vows. They stay in bad marriages because they promised. That's what they promised to do. And we need to remember that. Yeah, there can be, there can be some mistakes made in, in who you pick. But when you make that choice and you make those vows, that's it. I'm not telling you there's not exceptions where God permits divorce and remarriage. He certainly does. But generally speaking, where there's not been fornication and such things as that, He expects the vows to be kept and uh, the promises to be fulfilled. There's also vows that people make in times of trouble. David must have made those kind of vows many times. Sometimes, you know, uh, we'll have trouble, we'll have sickness, we'll have financial problems. Uh, our life might be threatened. Just troubles of various kinds. And sometimes people will say to God, Lord, if you'll just get me through this, I'll do this or I'll do that. Those are pretty serious statements. David said in Psalm 66, verse 13 and 14, I will go unto thy house with burnt offerings. I will pay thee my vows which my lips have uttered and my, my mouth have spoken when I was in trouble. So evidently David, when he would be in trouble, would make promises to God. And he said, I'm going to the house of God and I'm going to pay my vows that I vowed God when I was in trouble. Have you ever been in a tight and promised God various things? He still expects those things to be kept. He's not going to let them go. He's going to require it of you. And those are things we need to think about when we make these promises. It's fine to make, make promises to God, just be willing to keep it. See, Because didn't our opening scripture say, when thou vowest a vow unto the Lord, defer not to pay. He had no pleasure in fools. Pay that which thou hast vowed. Better is it that thou shouldest not vow than that thou shouldest vow and not pay. So God's going to require that vow of us. There are also vows that people have made to obey the gospel. You know, I think of old Felix when Paul preached to him. Look in Acts 24, 24. The Bible says that after certain days when Felix came with his wife Drusilla, which was, which was a Jewess, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. And as he reasoned of righteousness and temperance and judgment to come, Felix trembled. And answered, Go thy way for this time. When I have a convenient season, I will call for thee. Now he called for Paul quite frequently, but he did so in order to try to get money for Paul to pay a bribe for him to release Paul. He didn't, he didn't really call for Paul where he could favorably hear the gospel, which is what he seemed to imply in his statement to Paul. That wasn't his motive at all. There are people that promise God, I'm going to obey the gospel one day. I'm going to obey you in baptism. I'm going to become a Christian. I don't know if anyone here has made God that promise, but if you have, He requires that of you. And you need to pay that vow that you've made. There are others that vow as, as erring Christians that they're going to come back to God. You know, James 4.17 tells us, To him that knoweth to do good, and doeth it not, to him it's sin. So when we remember these vows, then it's, it's, uh, it's sin if we fail to do them. Leviticus 5, 4. 
or if a soul swear, pronouncing with his lips to do good or to do, to do evil or to do good, whatsoever it be that a man shall pronounce with an oath, and it be hid from him, when he knoweth of it, then he shall be guilty in one of these. So in other words, if we make a vow to God and we forget about it, but all of a sudden one day it comes back to our mind, then the Bible says that's when we become guilty. Because now it's in our mind. It's in our memory. Now we're aware of it. Now we understand. You know what? I made that promise to God, didn't I? And now God requires it. And if not, we're guilty. In fact, if we've not kept it yet, we're guilty. And that vow needs to be kept. Some people vow to come back to God. I think of the prodigal son when he said in, in Luke 15 and 18, I will arise and go to my father and will say unto him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before thee and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Now what if he had never got up and gone back to the father's house? What if he'd said, I'm going to rise and go to my father? And yet he never did. There are many times people that do that as erring Christians. They say, you know, I'm going to get things right with God. They tell the Lord one of these days, I'm going to get right with you. Be patient with me a while longer. And yet they don't do it. And when we don't do that, then that becomes a vow that's broken. And we become guilty. Let's look at vows that Christians make for just a little while before we close. There are various vows. Some people vow to attend church more regular. Hebrews 10 verse 24, 25 is very plain. Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. And let me say this about coming to church. It's considerate of other people for us to come to church. It's inconsiderate when we don't go to church. It just means we don't really care about the other people. We don't care about being there. We don't care about encouraging them. We have no interest in provoking them to love or to good works. So there's just no interest there at all. There's no concern. Let us consider one another. It's a considerate thing to be here. Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. So we promise the Lord when we become His children, we're going to follow Him. And if you're going to follow Jesus, then on Sunday, Jesus is going to be in church. He's not going to be asleep. He's not going to be watching television. He's not going to be at a ball game. He's not going to be at the lake fishing. He's not going to be out hunting. He's not going to be working and pursuing, pursuing some business venture. Jesus meets with the church. When we break bread, He's there with us. In spirit, we break bread with our Lord every first day of the week. He's not anywhere else but right here. As far as we're concerned, if we stay home, He's not there. And so it's pretty serious then when we promise the Lord, I'm coming to church. And a lot of people make that promise, and I think they intend to, I really think they intend to do better when they make it. But what we've got to understand is that when we make that promise to God, He, he requires it of us. He requires it anyway, because He's commanded attendance. And I'm going to charge the church. I know uh, a lot of us make long drives. I drive 50 minutes to get here. Takes me 50 minutes, and that's if the traffic's good. 
So that means I leave the house a lot of times about 9.15. I've got to get up and get around. Some of you live here close. You don't make it on time. And we need to do better in that area. We all do. So I'm going to challenge all of us. I know you want to do better. I'm going to challenge all of us to do better. Uh, the Youngmans and the Pitts, they've got a long drive like I do, and I know sometimes they can have trouble on a farm or difficulty in getting out and, and getting on the road like they need to, and, and I want them to understand that we understand that too. Sometimes you're just going to get delayed. And all of us are going to have problems at times where we just get delayed. If something's going to happen around the house that we've just got to attend to, we get an ox in the ditch, and it's going to delay us, perhaps, in getting away as quickly as what we'd like. But if we can at all, let's, let's be punctual. And here's one reason why, is the men who are in charge that have to line up the services can't line them up if the other brethren are not here. You can't line up people for prayers or songs if they're not here yet. And so many times we'll get a 10 to 15 minute delay because the one in charge can't get the service lined up because not everybody's there yet. And I'm just challenging us to do better. If you want to make a vow on that, help yourself, but God requires it. So <laughs> let's remember that. <laughs> let's do better. And that's spoken to everybody, not one or two, by the way. There's vows that people sometimes make as Christians to do more visiting. You ever done that? You ever said to yourself, I'm going to tend to widows more. I'm going to, I'm going to see to the sick more than what I do. I need to improve in that area. We all need to, to really be concerned in that area. And here's why. James 1.27, would you read that? Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction, and to keep himself unspotted from the world. That's pure religion. He didn't say pure religion is not singing with instruments. Now we wouldn't, we wouldn't use instrumental music in our worship at all, but that's not how he defined pure worship. He never said pure religion is keeping the Lord's Supper every Sunday. <clears throat> we wouldn't think of missing the Lord's Supper on Sunday. But pure religion is to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep ourselves unspotted from the world. That's pure religion. And so we need to be considerate of those about us that are, that are having problems. If we've got sick people, if there are folks that are shut in, if there are folks that have needs, uh, poor among us, those that are struggling financially, those that just need a little boost right now then we need to remember these people. That's pure religion. Galatians 6 and 2, the Bible says, bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Somebody's down on their luck right now, that's our responsibility. We can do that out of the treasury. We can do it out of our pocket if God's given us the ability. But we need to be concerned. Galatians 6 and 10, as we therefore have opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them which are of the household of faith. How are you in this area of your life? And have you promised God in times past, Lord, I need to do better in this. I know I do. And you know, a lot of times we may be over in town and we might be close to somebody, let's say, that's in a rest home. And we've got time. 
to stop by and see that person, but you know, it's going to cost us some time. It might take 30 minutes. It might cost a little extra money to drive a little bit out of our way to go check on someone. But that's our responsibility. And sometimes we might be prone to say, well, yeah, I'm close to the rest home right now. I'm close to brother or sister so-and-so's, but, and I want to see them. I need to do that. But I think I'll, I think I'll catch them Thursday when I'm doing this or that. And Thursday comes and we don't catch them. And if, we're, if we're, we have a tendency to delay those visits, and then we fail to keep them, and we don't fulfill what we promised to do. Let's think about our responsibilities to each other, to those about us that just need a helping hand. When God gives us abundance, let's be willing to share it. Then there's vows that Christians make to study more, to read more. 2 Timothy 2 and 15, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And we have all kinds of scripture about study. Let me read you three more verses right quickly. 1 Peter 3, 15, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. We cannot give an answer if we don't have an answer. And we won't have an answer if we don't study. John 5 and 39, Jesus said, Search the Scriptures. For in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they that testify of me. There's a difference in reading and searching. If you've ever dropped a ring in the grass or a coin in the grass, maybe at a park or somewhere, sometimes, you know, if it's valuable to you, you'll get down and you'll part leaves and blades of grass and you'll search through there till you find that object that you've lost. There's a difference in searching and just giving something a casual look and going on your way. He says search the scriptures. That implies a lot of effort and work and study. 2 Peter 3.18, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We could multiply statements about the importance of studying. Brothers and sisters, we get 168 hours every week. Every one of us get the same. Some of us have responsibilities others don't have, vice versa. But out of 168 hours a week, how, how much would you estimate that you study? Would you give, uh, for example, 15 minutes a day? What's that times seven? It's about an hour 45 a week out of 168. That's just 15 minutes a day. I'd like for us to think about our time right here. You know, you can carry a, you can carry a New Testament with you. I used to take one to work when I was working, and when we took a coffee break in the afternoon or in the mid-morning, I'd read a chapter or two there while I was drinking a cup of coffee while I took a break. On the lunch hour, I took a New Testament to work. I, I would read on the lunch hour. And then we carpooled. Back then, there were about four of us that rode together. When it wasn't my turn to drive, I sat in the back seat. I read scripture all the way from Mansfield to Fort Smith and back that night. And I could get in probably a couple of hours during the day of reading. 
And I, without embarrassing myself or you, I would go to the restroom. And when I had to sit, I would read a chapter. <laughs> you can read a chapter doing that. Keep a book in the bathroom. You can read a lot of scripture during the day. And I don't mean to be, I don't mean to be crude this morning, but we waste a lot of time when we really could read a chapter. See? And then we say, well, I didn't have time to read today. Yeah, we do. We just don't look for it, see. But there's all kinds of little pockets of time. Uh, if, you're, if you're having to wait on an appointment, we'll have you a little testament. You've got it on your phone, just read a chapter. We've got it so easy today on these phones. I mean, the Bible's just with us everywhere the phone is. And I'm just saying, brothers and sisters, we can know a lot of Scripture. We can do a whale of a lot of reading if we'll just take advantage of it. And so many times we promise God we're going to do that. And I'm trying to encourage you and show you ways that you can keep that, that promise. You can do a lot of reading. You can do a lot of study. And then there's vows that Christians make to do personal work. How many of you have, have vowed, I'm going, to, I'm going to lead somebody to Christ. But you haven't gotten that done yet. Well, we're starting a new year. I'm going to challenge everybody here to win a soul this year. Just win one soul. Now, if you get one quickly, go get another one. Don't quit. But make it a goal. I'm going to win a soul. I'm going to lead somebody to Jesus. We can all do that. We all know people that nobody else knows. And if you're not able to study with that person, some of us are. Everybody here can set up a study. You know somebody. And just simply say to them, you know, we like to study the Bible with, with folks in their home. We, we love to go to people's homes and, and you could say to them, do you, do you enjoy doing that? And they might say, well, you know, I never have done that much. You might just take that opportunity and say, would you like to? Why don't we just get together sometime and we'll have some snacks and, or maybe a meal, but we can just sit down with some finger foods and some snacks or some pizza or whatever and let's just have a Bible study. And if they agree to that and you can't lead the study, just tell them, look, I'm, I'm not real good at leading studies, but, but I know someone who is. And I know they'd be willing to just join up with us and enjoy the fellowship. Just set that study up. It can be at their house or at yours or wherever it is. But we can all win a soul like that. Uh, we have a commandment to do that. And I want to look at the example of Jonah for just a minute. Jonah 1 verse 2, God told Jonah this, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Now what is Nineveh? You ever wondered about Nineveh? Ever heard of Assyria? And I don't have room here to... Assyria would lie way up here off our map. So I don't have room to go up there. But Nineveh... was the capital city of Assyria. And now Jonah's down here in Israel and he's told, go up, here to, go up here to Nineveh and cry against that city because the wickedness is great. Jonah didn't want to go. You ever wondered why he didn't want to go to Nineveh? Why wouldn't he go up there and, and call on people to repent of sin where God would forgive them? Because Nineveh was the capital of Assyria who was Israel's bitter enemy. They were the dominant world empire he didn't want Nineveh saved. What Jonah knew was, if I go up there and preach to Nineveh, and they take this message to heart and they repent, God will forgive them. He won't punish them. 
He'll forgive them. He knew God would. And he didn't want them forgiven. <laughs> they were enemies. So what did he do? Caught him a ship. Went over here and caught a ship for Tarsus. Got out on the Mediterranean out here. So God had a little surprise for him, didn't he? He prepared a great fish. And eventually the storm got so bad and the sailors got in so much danger. You remember the story. They had to throw Jonah overboard in order to calm the sea. They threw him overboard and everything calmed down and God had a fish prepared that swallowed him right up. And he spent three days and nights in the belly of that fish. Now can you imagine the stench in there? The dampness, the stink of being inside a big old fish like that. Just the innards of it. Uh, the darkness. The water that was in there surrounding him. Don't you know that would just scare the daylights out of you? And how, how, much would you, how much would you guess that Jonah made some promises to God during that time? Wouldn't you? God, if you'll get me out of here, I'll go to Nineveh. I can just see him saying that. Well, look at, look at Jonah chapter 2, verse 9. Jonah says, I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay that that I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. You know the story. The fish finally vomited jo uh, Jonah out. And Jonah got underway and he went over to Nineveh. Nineveh was a large city. Took three days just to walk across it. And he began to preach yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And remember the people heard that message and they took it to heart and they repented. And God spared that city and even that grieved Jonah. He knew God would do that. But God told him to get up and go talk to those people. God's told you and I the same thing. Matthew 28 and 19, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And I wonder if we're running away from that like Jonah did. He ran from what God wanted him to do. How many are we teaching? We have that charge. And people, people all about you and I are going to go to hell if we don't take them the gospel. They're headed to the lake of fire. Does that bother us? Does that bother you? Does it bother you that people you work with are going to go to hell? Does it bother you that your neighbors, people you love, are maybe lost and go to the lake of fire? Does that bother anybody? If we felt like their house was about to be burned down, we'd warn them. If an earthquake was going to destroy their, their uh, residence, we would, we would issue a warning. We, we let people know when there's some kind of a, an imminent danger, don't we? I've, I've sent Julie many, many messages about tornadoes. Watch the weather. Watch the weather. And I know she probably gets tired of Dad doing that. I've sent it to brethren across the country. I'd just be thinking of them watching a weather map and see a storm coming, and especially over in Oklahoma. I might just send a text, hey, have you looked at the weather map? Usually they'll say, yes, I'm watching it now. You know, they're, they're used to it in Oklahoma. I finally just learned to quit doing that. For people from Oklahoma, they, they kept up with the weather pretty good. Nonetheless, 
We need to warn people. There's a song. I didn't check this book to see if it's in here. I, I think it may be. It's about in every book I've seen, but it's called You Never Mention Him to Me. And uh, one, one verse, I don't know if I can quote it. When in the better land before the bar we stand, how deeply grieved our souls may be. If any lost one there should cry in deep despair, you never mentioned him to me. You never mentioned him to me. You helped me not the light to see. You met me day by day and knew I was astray, yet never mentioned him to me. Those would be sad words to stand at the judgment and have somebody beside us make that statement to us. Why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you show me this? And you know what? We can't guarantee their response. They may not respond to, to the gospel. We're not responsible for their response. We are responsible for, for telling them about Christ. And then what they do with the message is up to them. But it's our responsibility to give them the message. Let's pay our vows. If you've vowed that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a soul winner, we're starting this new year. Get busy. You've got an afternoon this evening. This afternoon, this evening. Pretty weather. So we can get started on that even today if there's vows that you need to pay in that regard. I want us to remember up at the top there the opening text. When thou vowest a vow unto God, defer not to pay it. For he hath no pleasure in fools. Pay that which thou hast vowed. Better is it that thou shouldest not vow than that thou shouldest vow and not pay. And let's remember Jephthah in our story who said to his daughter, I have opened my mouth unto the Lord and I cannot go back. And if there's some way this morning that one of you needs to pay a vow and you can do that by responding to the invitation if that'll help you in paying the vow that you've made. And we'd like to invite you to come forward if you need to do that. And if we can assist anyone in their relationship with the Lord, we invite you to come forward as we sing the song of invitation today. Would you come? We hope you enjoyed this teaching from God's Word. If there's anything we can do to help you in your walk with Christ, send us a message at facebook.com slash cfcnwa. To find more sermons, look for us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and like our Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and God bless.